Well, I ask you to turn to Joel 2, so go ahead and do that. Joel chapter 2. And this morning, I want to show you a link between two words in several passages. Joel 2 will be where we start. But these two words, um, when you see their connection and the link that they provide for us, I'm praying that it will cause within all of us one of two things. In fact, this is my prayer and pastoral hope today. That you'll either come back to God or you'll be more on mission for God. I've been praying all week that one of those two things will happen in every single person gathered today. You'll come back to God or you'll be more on mission for God. Now, now what prevents both of those is the three-letter word sin. But we're going to see that in these texts and the two words and what they show us, that that's the way back. It forms the roadmap for our way back from sin to the Savior. So these two words are very important today. And I'm praying even while I'm speaking to you, again, that God will draw people back to himself today, either in repentance and confession or to be more on mission for him. So can we begin in Joel 2? I'll begin reading in verse 28. Let me read the first phrase to you, then we'll pause and explain why it's there, and then we'll keep reading. Joel 2, 28, this is a minor prophet in the Old Testament. Here's what the Lord would say to us through this book. And it shall come to pass afterward, pause, after what? Well, if you read the book of Joel, it's God's judgment upon his people for their sin. In all frankness, we don't have a clear date on the book of Joel, So we don't really know for sure when he's writing. There's no referenced ruler in the book of Joel. Like in most of the Old Testament prophets, they're directed towards a king or a period in which someone's ruling the nation. Here, there's not a referenced ruler. There's not a clear date. But there is a reference to a plague of locusts. And so my sense is probably 800s. Locusts came, they devoured much of Israel as one of God's judgments upon them for their sin. But I think even that natural judgment was a symbolic and somewhat of a, of a type of God's future judgment through the armies of Babylon who came and overthrew the southern kingdom and took them into captivity and exile. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. That's what Joel's saying God's going to do if they don't repent. So after that, after that judgment, watch this. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Underline the word all. That's a distinctive word here. And he says here, your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, say it with me, church, I will pour out my spirit. Underline that phrase. And notice that they kind of envelope what's in between it. You see that? And often when people read this section, they get distracted or detoured by what's in the middle. The dreams, the visions, the prophesying. They're like, hey man, what's going on with that? When's that going to occur? But the point is not the dreams and the visions and the prophesying. Because those have always occurred in God's economy. The Holy Spirit's always worked in supernatural ways to lead his people. What's going on here is that it's not a select few, but it's all flesh. That's the point of the text. Do you see it in your Bible? God's going to pour his spirit on all flesh. That's mentioned twice. And he says, hey, your sons, your daughters, the old men, the young men, 
even the male and female servants, it's a, it's a way, a poetic way of describing there's not going to be anyone left out of God's Holy Spirit indwelling. That's what's coming. He was saying, after this judgment, there will be a time in which I will pour out my spirit on everyone who's in my people, who's part of my family, who believes. That's amazing. That's not how it worked at the current time in Joel's uh, history. In fact, at this time, they would usually, God would just pour his spirit out on the priests, the prophets, those who were judging Israel, select servants who would minister. It wasn't an every person thing, which is why Moses in Numbers 29 said to Joshua in kind of a scolding manner. See, Joshua was kind of uh, rebuking some folks who were prophesying in the middle of all the people. And like, hey, you shouldn't be doing that here. That's for a select group. And Moses said this, number 29, he said, I wish that all of God's people had God's spirit. He knew it wasn't at that time the way God worked. But here, God's promising that after his judgment, and he probably means they're immediate and, of course, eventual, there's a, there's a time after this judgment in which he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Man, so this is a great promise for the children of Israel in that time. Now, he continues describing another event. Look at verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And incidentally, I love the way this passage makes great friends with those whom the Lord calls and those who call on the Lord. Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty always are friends. Amen, church. Right here in this text, even in the Old Testament. I love it. Now, what he's describing here is this day. It's called the great and awesome day of the Lord in which um, God's wrath comes upon those who are his enemies or those who don't believe. Now, what I find is interesting is here, there is, a, uh, I believe, a gap between 29 and 30. And we just don't know how long that is. You have an initiating event in 28 and 29 when God pours his spirit out on all people then you have this great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, how long is between those two? We don't know. But I tend to think this is the window of restoration. Why do I think that? Look at verse one of chapter three. Don't take your eyes off the text. For behold, in those days and at that time. Draw a line from that phrase back to the word afterward in verse 28. Those are synonymous terms. In other words, after the judgment, I'm going to do this. And then he says in verse 1, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Circle the word restore. So I take this text to mean both in its immediate fulfillment and I think in its eventual fulfillment. Because there's probably some double prophecy going on here, some double fulfillment. What God is saying is this. There's a time coming when I'll pour out my spirit on all people. And there's a time coming when I will judge all people, the great day of the Lord. And in between those two times, that'll be when I restore my people. And how is all that empowered? What's the, what's the initiating event for that? The pouring out of God's spirit on all flesh. So here's the two words we're going to see first see together. Spirit and restore. Can you say them with me? Spirit 
and restore. God says here to his people through Joel, a day's coming when I'm going to pour out my spirit on all believers, on all flesh, all your sons and daughters. That time will be a time when I restore my people. So I'm connecting spirit and restore. Now the question is, is that a legitimate biblical connection? Can we make that connection? Is it seen other places? Glad you asked. Acts chapter one. Notice how God's timeline keeps moving and these two words are in the minds of his followers. Acts chapter one. Beginning in verse four, Jesus here has already told them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard about from me. John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Not long after this promise of the Holy Spirit, they're with Jesus, and so they ask him in verse six, Lord, will you at this time, say it with me, church, restore the kingdom to Israel. Circle the word restore in verse six. Also circle the word, words Holy Spirit in verse five. You see, they're really close, aren't they? So here we see another connection, another link between restoring and the Holy Spirit. Well, he says to them in verse seven, it's not for you to know the times or season the father is fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the, say it church, Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Notice something here. His answer was not denying there'd be restoration. But I think he was saying to them, you're wrong about the who and the when. They wanted restoration right then. Their minds were thinking restoration. In fact, they were probably thinking about Joel's prophecy. You can read Jeremiah 33 has similar language. They're thinking about the previous prophets and, and that God had sent Christ. He's the ultimate fulfillment. He said it's finished, so God has judged sin. So is this the time when, we, when you're going to restore Israel? And he says, no, it's not the time right now, and it's not just Israel. He says, I want you to wait for the Spirit and be witnesses to all nations. Amen. He enlarges this, doesn't he? It's no longer a national thing just to Jews. He said, I'm looking for people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. And it's the Holy Spirit that will empower you towards this mission. But not once in the scripture is he saying there's not a time of restoration coming. He's saying it's just not when you think it is or about who you think it's about. So do you see the connection? Holy Spirit in verse six, five, restore uh, in verse four, and then Holy Spirit in verse eight. So again, there's this connection, this linkage between restore and spirit. Go to chapter two, just flip to the right one page. Here's the actual fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Verse 14 begins Peter explaining what just happened. The Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son, and the arrival of the Spirit was so dramatic that, that um, those in the upper room, those 120 at least, went down to the temple common courts, what they called Solomon's colonnade, and they just began to share the wonders of God, the scripture said. They began to talk about God's mighty works. And this was being heard in all the languages of the world. And, and so people are hearing the gospel in their own language, even though folks who were sharing it didn't know that language. It was a dramatic moment. And so there were those who looked at that and said, wow, these are just a bunch of drunk people. 
They've had too much. And Peter stands up and corrects them. And he says in verse 14, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So suddenly we're going to now revisit what Joel said. And when was it fulfilled? When did that first, when did, this is the event in which the Holy Spirit's poured out on all flesh. He quotes Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32 here. And I believe what Peter does in, in quoting this, he is saying this is the initiating event. God's Spirit's now poured on all flesh. Everyone who believes will get God's Spirit indwelling them. It's not like the past where there was a select few, but all who believe receive God's Spirit. And then he says, so because of what's coming at some point later, which begins in verse 19, the wonders in the heavens, the signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood, the day of the Lord. Joel called it the great and awesome day of the Lord. By the way, this same language is used in Revelation 6. I should say similar language is used in Revelation 6 to describe the sixth seal. That's a possibility of what this is also referring to. He's saying that in order to receive the Spirit and not be in this judgment, call upon the name of the Lord. So he says in this phrase, call upon the Lord. 3,000 people do, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they're baptized that day. Amen. So do you see what's happening here? The Holy Spirit is coming, and God is restoring people. So I would contend with you this morning that it is a legitimately biblical connection to make between the work of the Holy Spirit and the restoring of people. And to be most precise about the text, the restoring of God's people. Let me show you one other passage that has these two linked together, which just kind of adds some credence to what we're doing. It's Psalm 51. This is more individual than it would be collective. You know, these three have been more about God's people as a whole. But Psalm 51 is about King David. And he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband. He pretended it, that didn't happen, hid it. He acted like it wasn't a big deal. But Nathan the prophet confronted him. And then by God's grace and mercy, David repented and confessed. This is his prayer of confession. Months after his sin. And notice in verses 11 and 12, two things he connects. Psalm 51, 11 and 12. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your, say it church, Holy Spirit from me. Say the next word. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What two words are we linking now? Spirit and restore. So I think it's accurate. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're doing that for these eight or nine weeks. It's like week five or six. We must address this role and ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he has a restoring work. You see, the common words we saw highlight a common work of the Holy Spirit, and it's the work of restoration. Will you say it with me? Restoration. That's what the Holy Spirit does in individuals and in groups of individuals. Now, that's a pretty broad statement. These texts, there's 
a good bit of complexity about many of them. In fact, there's so much complexity that we could probably disagree on some elements of them. The timing, what they refer to in their prophetic fulfillment, we could disagree and have coffee and be great friends still. I don't want the complexity to cloud their simplicity. And the simplicity of these connected texts and words is this. There is a work the Holy Spirit is doing in people and in groups. It's called restoring them to God. Isn't that beautiful? God's Holy Spirit restores people. When you hear the word restore, you've got to let's be honest about the text and about the and the and the, and the uh, word. I think it's meaning primarily, most specifically, bringing people who belong to God already back to God. In fact, that is the implication of all the texts. Israel belonged to God, but they sinned and strayed, and God's Holy Spirit brought them back. David sinned, he belonged to God, but God brought him back. So we have to say restoration is a restoring. But let's be honest. When God restores his people, guess what? The result of that is often that he begins to regenerate those around them. Because when God revives and renews and replenishes his people, one of the very first things that happens is you begin to sense a spirit of evangelism break out. You want to share what God has done. You're lit. You're on fire for God's purposes. His mission matters most. And the result of that is people around you hear the gospel. They see the change in your life and they come to God for the first time. So when I hear, when you hear restoration, yes, it is specifically about God bringing his people back. But I just want to say often where there is great restoration, there is also then great regeneration. Man, it's seen and felt around people. So this is restoration linked together by these two words, spirit and restore. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me see if I can put some words to the concept and maybe some other comments to help you even get a better handle on it. I've kind of written a definition of restoration. It's simple, but I think it's taken right from the scriptural text. It's taken from the different words used and the way it's seen throughout scripture. And here's how I would define restoration. It's the Holy Spirit bringing people back to God and bringing about the plan of God. In fact, will you just say that with me? That restoration is the Holy Spirit bringing people back to God and bringing about the plan of God. You see, the Holy Spirit doesn't bring us back to God through conviction and through illuminating our sin and through you know, drawing us back just for our own personal comfort. Like, okay, well, I got you back. We're done. Let's move on. He actually brings us back into right relationship with the Father through the Son so that we're on mission for God, so that his agenda replaces ours. There's a reason for restoration, and it's God's purposes. It's his mission. You'll find this true in every one of the texts we read this morning. Israel was to be a light to the nations. Those early disciples, that first church, those 120, they were to speak of God's mighty works. They were to go to the ends of the earth. David was to lead the nation to worship God only, away from idols and away from the Baals. So in every one of these texts, you find that God, God's spirit brought them back so they could lead towards God's purposes. So that's why we define it this way. The Holy Spirit is restoring people back to God and bringing about the plan of God. 
Now, this happens concurrently and ultimately. In other words, there is a simultaneous restoring by God's Spirit of God's people going on right now. I believe we're in this window of restoration between the pouring out of His Spirit on all flesh and the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so it could happen in Ron's life when he sins and God brings him back through his Holy Spirit in my life at the same time. You know, God's spirit doesn't say, okay, I got to work on Ron. Todd, can you just push pause and wait there in the waiting room for a bit? We'll get to you. Your number's next. No, concurrently, simultaneously, God can work in my life, Ron's life, Ted's life. He can work in our church, the other church. He can work in this part of the globe and that part of the globe. Amen? That's why Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away and send a comforter. Because the Holy Spirit's not limited to time and space as was the human person of Jesus. And so the restoring work of the Spirit is a global, concurrent, simultaneous thing. But it is also ultimate. In other words, we see these two events. There's an initiating event. The Holy Spirit's poured out on all flesh. In other words, all who believe, man, they receive the Spirit. But there's a day in which that will end. It's called the great and awesome day of the Lord. The window of restoration will close one day. That's why I want to appeal to you, and I will later even more emphatically, return to God. Come back to the Lord. So it's concurrent, it's ultimate. I think you've seen clearly that this restoration can happen corporately as well as individually. So before we explain a bit about the process, let me just simply say to you, can, can we just rejoice that the Holy Spirit restores people? Amen. Man, could you let your heart smile for a bit? Man, rejoice and sing that God in heaven gives his spirit to all who believe for the purpose of restoring them to himself. Amen. Now, when you look at this definition and you understand more of its description, this all comes from explicit words. Remember, common explicit words show us the common work of the Spirit. But I think there's also an implied and illustrated process. This is a principle we draw from those explicit words. I think there's a process we can understand that's more implied and illustrated. Let me show you the process. Because restoration, in all of its beauty, is part of a larger picture. In every one of the texts we read, and as you look at the biblical narrative, you'll find this is the general process of which restoration is part. There's sin, there's judgment, then there's conviction slash repentance, confession, then restoration, then mission. You follow me? That seems to be the, the real pattern in all of these scenarios, whether it's David, whether it's Israel. I'll give you a few other examples in a moment. But there, there seems to be sin and then judgment and then repentance, confession, then restoration. God gives back the years the locusts have eaten, Joel 2.25. And then mission. This is true for Jonah. Remember Jonah? He sinned by running from God. He said, I'm not going to go preach to Nineveh. They'll kill me. So I'm going to go instead become a sailor. <laughs> so he heads out on a ship <clears throat> going to Tarshish. And God judges him by causing a storm and the crew threw him overboard. They're thinking, we got rid of the problem. 
But then God brought a, a, a great fish by to swallow me. In this, in this fish, he repented and confessed and got beautifully vomited up on the shore. At which point, God says, will you go to Nineveh? Don't you love that restoration? After Jonah's sin, God didn't say, hey, you're all washed up, no pun intended. He said, Jonah, now, can we get back to what I want you to do? And mission. Interesting, isn't it? That's the process. Restoration's a part of that. Think about Peter. Peter's just mouthing off great about his commitment. But when it got tough, he said, I don't know Jesus. He denies him. He sins. He stays at a distance. But he sees the Lord, catches eyes with Jesus, and somewhere in that there's this, there's this convicting kind of judgment. Like, man, I'm, I'm wrong. I shouldn't abandon Jesus like this. There's repentance and confession. The Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. Then he's having breakfast with Jesus on the, sh- on, the, on, the, on the shore. And Jesus says, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. And did you love that? You would think, hey, I don't have time for you, Peter. You ran away when, you, when I needed you most. But no, he says, hey, I, I need you to feed my sheep. And what happens is Peter becomes the instrumental leader in the very first church. So you can use David and Israel. And you can also use Jonah and Peter to see the principle and the process that the Holy Spirit empowers restoration. And we should rest in the beauty that God does this for his people. Amen. Amen. He restores us. As I was thinking about this principle, these examples, the process, I just try to put all this into a, a single phrase that I think, or a single sentence that I think you could tuck in your pocket and take home. And as I was reading through Joel and even Acts, I realized this is more than a take-home truth. This is really a take-home promise. Peter said in Acts 2, verse 39, that this promise, speaking of the Holy Spirit coming on all flesh, and then God being with us in person for his purposes, it was for you, your children, and those who are far off. Like that, that's, that's great news, isn't it, church? That's a promise we can latch on to. So, so just kind of tuck this take-home promise in your pocket today, would you? That the Holy Spirit of God powerfully restores. It means whatever sin, judgment, consequence is darkening your past, looming in your future, overshadowing your present, whatever it is, the Holy Spirit can restore you from that. He can bring you back to God to further the plan of God. Isn't that great news? This is the ministry or the role of the work of restoration by the Holy Spirit. As I was thinking through this take-home promise, my mind went to several moments when I experienced the restoration of the Holy Spirit. I've had many in my marriage as some of you other husbands can relate. At times you are harboring sin, you're clinging to idols, and it takes your wife kind of having a hard conversation with you, and you realize, man, I'm wrong, and and you just confess, you repent, 
and you experience restoration, and then you're more on mission with your wife for God's purposes. I've had many moments of restoration here by our own elders, friends of mine in this church, times when I've sinned, and they've come, some even to the house, and just said, hey, can we talk? And they'll just they'll lay out God's word and said, hey, man, this wasn't a good moment. And I've had those, those kind of experiences. And, and man, I praise God for faithful elders, staff, and friends who are willing to walk with me through my own sanctification. But I think the most memorable one for me was when I was a senior in high school. I was saved at 14. God just graciously regenerated my heart and gave me the faith to believe the truth about his son. And so about three years, just some real life change. But right before I became a junior in high school, I just began to be lured by sin, drawn away. And there was about a year I just was harboring and hiding some sin, developing relationships that weren't healthy. They were feeding, in fact, some of the detouring of my life. And I went off on a youth group trip. I was still really involved in our church, just kind of pretending, to be honest with you. And I was, the whole time I knew I was, I was feeling really convicted. Um, so like a lot of you can relate to that. You, this war going on within you. Could someone nod and say, you're not alone, Todd? I appreciate that. Thank you. And so right before my senior year, I was off with our youth group on a trip. I'm not sure all that we were doing, but we were coming back from that trip. And a lot had happened in a good way. And so they were discussing that in this van. And... Uh, at the same time, I got news that my dad was just appointed as principal of my high school. So I'm putting two and two together thinking, I'm harboring sin. I'm clinging to some idols. I'm not being really truthful in some matters. And my dad's going to be my principal. Uh, this is not really adding up well right now. And you know what? God's spirit used all that just to bring me in the seat of that van, just to a point of repentance. There was no fanfare I didn't walk an aisle. I didn't throw a stick in the fire. I didn't sing Kumbaya. I just said, God, things will be different from this point forward. Thank you for convicting me, Holy Spirit, and drawing me back to the right relationship. I got home a little after midnight. I don't know if I drove home or if someone took me, but I remember when I got home, I knocked on my parents' door, and I think my dad kind of moaned, like, oh, it's late, or something like that. And I just peeked in and said, hey, Dad, Mom, um, I've rededicated my life to God and things will be different tomorrow. I don't know if they knew all that was going on, uh, but they knew that things were different the next day. I made some really key decisions. It took about six months uh, of just kind of difficulty. It was uh, getting rid of some friends, making some new habits, adjusting some things, burning some idols, so to speak. But after about six months of some tough work, consequences and judgment, man, God just began to kind of, and I just use this phrase from Joel, he just began to give back the years the locusts have eaten as a senior in high school. And I look back at that moment as a real key moment of restoration for me when God brought back one of his people for his purposes. My hunger has been very deep for God's purposes and mission since then. So I, I, I think when I preach on this and when I study this and, and talk to you about it, there's a personal nature to it. I, I know what it feels like to be harboring idols and clinging to sin and then hear the voice of the Spirit drawing you out of that back to God. So can I pastorally and courageously lean on you to come back to God this morning?
And make no mistake, there are people in this room and there are people who are watching who need to come back to God. I'm not speaking of, and I'm going to be very courageously honest and transparent with you. I'm not speaking of those who, and we're all in this boat, who, who are probably you know, stumbling our way through sanctification. No one gets it perfect every time, but our hearts are willing. I'm not speaking of those. I'm talking about those who right now are harboring and clinging to known sin. You're persistently engaging in disobedience to God. And in fact, as I was praying about this this past week and praying for you and for myself, trying to pastor diligently and well here, I thought of this scenario, and I think the Holy Spirit brought this to mind because I think it's true. There are some who are now clinging to and persistently owning sin, but it didn't start that way. It was really just a trial, but it's turned into a trap. I'm referring to the current pandemic coronavirus situation in which I think there were many people who honestly paused and and analyze what's the best next step forward. Our church did about five, six, seven weeks. We said, hey, what's our next step forward? How can we analyze, assess? How can we be careful but faithful? We made a plan. By God's grace, he brought us back together. And we've been urging you now for over a year. Man, figure out the hurdles. We can't negotiate God's mission just because of risk or danger. Safety's an illusion. So are there issues and people in places where they have to be extra careful and make different decisions? I'm sure there are. I'm not speaking to those people. I'm speaking to those who found the five or seven weeks of convenience very attractive and have stayed in bed or on the couch. They can go to a game. They can attend a concert. They can go to work. But they can't make it to church or their small group. I'm just going to be very pastorally courageous with you. I think that's sin. You have let a trial become a trap. And you're involved in a very spiritually destructive lifestyle where you're avoiding any kind of connection to people. You're avoiding any kind of real reason for living your life. You're not using, you're not seeing God's purposes. The life, the ladder of your life isn't leaning against that wall any longer. In fact, if you were to look in the mirror, you'd say, hey, what happened in my life of the last year? How did this occur? I'll tell you how it occurred. You let a trial turn into a trap. Romans 13, 14 says, you're letting the devil uh, um, take an occasion for the flesh. And what could have been just a momentary pause to kind of analyze and say, what's the next best step? You've now replaced God's agenda with your own. You've replaced his call to commitment to your need for comfort. And your schedule matters more than God's priorities. And so in a hopefully loving way, I want to call you back from that sin. And maybe there are other sins. Maybe there's other idols you're clinging to. But the Holy Spirit desires to restore you this morning. So my question this morning is, will you come back to God? Maybe there are those who should be more on mission for God. You see, I don't think they're in the camp of harboring idols or clinging to known sin persistently. They're probably more, like I said, stumbling their way through sanctification, but their heart right now is just lit up. It's it's ignited to be more on mission because they realize God restores me from sin consistently so that I can be about his purposes. 
Maybe that's you this morning. You just want to pray and ask God, God, continue to light my fire for what matters to you. God, take every bit of my resources and my time, use them for every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. I don't know which one you are, but the Holy Spirit will restore you from sin or he'll restore you for service. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do both. Amen, church? And my sneaky suspicion is right now, from end to end, there's a nervous tapping on many of your hearts. There's a persistent knocking. And Revelation 3.20 is occurring in your life. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if any man will open the door, I'll come in and I'll have sweet fellowship with him. Would you open the door, come back to God, and be in right relationship with Jesus? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.